Good morning, brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad whatever you had to overcome to get yourself here to worship today, I'm glad you're here with me looking at God's word to be encouraged in your faith. And I hope you go home filled up with more than what you came with so that you feel like you've got more energy, spiritually speaking, to face the week. So let's get started. We were not born thinking about others. Is that news to you? Uh, We were actually born thinking mostly about ourselves, and the world revolves around us until somewhere along the way, God helps us learn a monumental lesson in maturity, pretty early on usually, that other people, like the two big people raising us, rearing us, they have feelings too. Usually, though, a little kid is just all about their feelings, and parents tend to, when they're little baby, innocently, we, we help support that because we come to their beck and cry. And we make sure all their needs are met, making sure they're okay. And we think, hey, this works. I can still remember a monumental moment in my life when God pushed me to realize the deep emotions that my parents had that I don't think I had taken into account up until that point at all. I was four years old, standing in the front yard, playing with a ball. We lived on a busy street that sort of curved around our house. We had a pie-shaped lot. The front of it was really wide. And... uh, it was a busy street in a, in a neighborhood, kind of one of the main roads through. Had a lot of traffic. Uh, it was typical, classical story of a little kid running across the street. The ball, we had a parked car right out next to our driveway. The ball, I lost, lost, it was bouncing around. It went across the street and up onto the grass strip between the sidewalk and the street. And I stood there on my side of the street and I thought, I've always been kind of a risk taker, by the way. I thought, I can do this. And I looked down, and there was a car coming, but I thought, I can beat that car. I darted across the street, and just as I got to the grass and the ball, the car went by behind me, and I had kind of an adrenaline rush confirmation. I made it. And then I heard a blood-curdling scream from behind me. On the other side, my father. Donald! Stay right there! Don't move! I thought he was going to kill me. I'd made it past the car, but I wasn't sure I'd make it past Dad. And another car went by, and another one, and the coast was clear, and he ran across the street, and I can still feel the squeeze on my my bicep. And he brought me back across the street, you know, when your feet kind of touch every six or seven feet to the other side. And he knelt down and got right in my face, and I was horror-stricken, and also, though, I saw fear in his eyes that I had never realized before. And he whipped his face around and he pointed right there and said, Do you see that scar? And I said, "Uh Uh-huh. I didn't see a thing, by the way. But I wasn't going to tell him I didn't. He said, When I was a little boy, I ran out between two cars and I got hit by a car and it almost killed me. And he goes, That's what can happen to you. Don't you ever cross that street without your mother and I. And I thought, Forever, huh? Yeah, I won't. So when I was 16, I would ask, no, I didn't do that. But but I got the message. What I really got, though, and then I wanted to share with you was, is that I realized there that it wasn't so much the wrath of my dad, but the love and fear in my dad's heart that I was connected to him so indelibly that he owned me and he saw himself losing me while I was daring to beat that car. And it it, it changed me. Not, I mean, I didn't stop sinning, you know. 
but it changed my view of him. You take that, that idea that I'm trying to share with you that we don't get born into this world knowing that our parents have feelings. We don't get born into this world knowing God has feelings either. And we go through life a lot longer than age four often until it starts to dawn on us. And even today, as old as we are, we often don't give it a thought in our spirituality that God has strong feelings. When we think about temptation, we think about our desires and not having them met or struggling to fall into. We think about the the pain that we feel when we go through guilt and we want to get rid of it. The fear and shame that come with it. We're glad Jesus takes the shame away. And when we think about going to hell and we're scared, we're thinking about, I don't want to go to hell. We're not thinking about God's feelings. So I want to take you, spiritually speaking, morally speaking, way up onto the precipice of spiritual motivation and say, I want you to understand and to know and to believe the truth that God has strong feelings for us. And I want you to help me preach for the rest of the sermon. And that means I really want you to do this for me, okay? If I ask in the rest of the sermon, and why did God do that? Or why did God say that? I want you to say that. Can we practice? Why did God do that? Now, it's not going to be up there, so it's down here on the paper. You better remember it, okay? Don't miss your cue. You'll help me preach this. God, we want to leave here. I want to leave here today not just preaching it, but but remembering it and believing it. And I want you to be the same way. God has strong feelings for us. And they're all about love. I want to take you to this place in the Bible that we're going to study I've never preached from this before, but when you let Dan make the preaching schedule, he assigns texts to you that are challenging. It's wonderful, though. It's beautiful. Okay? Look at this map. And Dan got that for me, too. First service didn't have it. I had to make the the front the map. Okay? That's the land where Israel lived. And that's about the time of the period of the judges. The judges' time period is after Joshua conquered the land and all the Israelites moved in, and Moses is long gone, and before David was born and king. Philistia is where Goliath later was. See that along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea? Ammon over there on the right, that's on the east side of the Jordan River. God's people are where the shaded green is. Some are on the right side of the river, that's called Gilead. Some are on this side of the river. We call that just the Holy Land or Israel, so you you got it. Now, that's during the period of the judges, and two great enemies of God's people are Philistia and Ammon. The others, Moab was too. But they show up in this Bible story where God has strong feelings. Now, I, told you, I showed you the map and told you about this. I've got to tell you just a little more background to Judges, and then we're ready to roll. The book of Judges is often called the darkest book in the Bible because... It, it, the, the, the state of the people of God's minds, hearts, and lives is pitiful. They continually get involved with the world around them instead of God. They're not on a mission for God as much as they're on a mission for their own indulgences. And that people, Philistia and Ammon and Moab, they had gods of their own. They didn't have this one idea of a God out there. So Ammon had Chemosh. And he was a a vindictive God. And oftentimes, not all the time, they would sacrifice their own children to get chemo, they thought, to do what they needed him to do. 
Sometimes adults were sacrificed to Chemos. Philistia was with champ, were champ, and further north even, Phoenicia, they were champions of the god Baal and his girlfriend Ashereth. They were fertility gods. And most of the time, the worship of those two gods involved orgies around the, the high places and the temple places. Both of these gods, and, and a couple others, one called Molech, couple others. They were very tempting for Israel because they were from the world around them in which they lived. And the gods that people make appeal to some of your baser passions. The Greeks did that, the Romans did that later, and so did these little people groups there. And so, while they were living there, the people of the living God who got them out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land, they would, they would start worshiping those other gods. While they still had the temple or the, tent, the tabernacle tent for their god, they would get these little god statues in their houses and they would go to the high places of those other gods and they would do both. And for God, that was adultery. You can't do both. And they would, be, they would fall to the prey to the immorality and the selfishness that those gods allowed in the way that they treated their fellow family members and friends, and it was a dark, dark, dark period. Well, what would happen after they did that is that God would say, I'm going to let Philistia or Ammon or Moab, I'm going to let them come in, and they're going to dominate you and molest you as a nation until you turn your hearts back to me. And then the people would turn their hearts back to God. And they would say, oh, God, we see what's happening. You're letting them do this because we have forsaken you. And then God would raise up a judge like like Gideon and Samson and Deborah. Those were all in the book of Judges. And that judge would come and chase out the enemies and there'd be a time of peace. And then what would happen? The people would go back to their sins. And then this whole, it's it's cyclical throughout the whole book. Well, chapter 10 is in the middle. And it's a section that I don't remember reading. I know I've read it many times because I've read it, the book, a lot. But it's not very notable. If I'd have just said, remember this story, you would not remember it. Because I wouldn't remember it. Okay? But now we're going to read it. And I want you to see God's heart. That God has strong emotions. I want you to remember the picture of my dad. Because God is your father. And listen as I read these words. Okay? We'll read uh, this first. I'll read it, first paragraph. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asherahs and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon. These are towns, or Sidon is. The gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead. Remember that? The land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Those are tribes in Israel. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. Uh, when it says they were in great distress, what was it like for these enemies to come in? It, I, this, from everything I read in biblical scholarly literature, it, it matches everything I hear when I hear about ISIL or ISIS coming and raiding a town. So if you want to get the feeling of what they were going through, 
beheadings, rapes, atrocities, taking all their money, driving. I read an article this week on the plane that they were, ISIS was just glad that they let a bunch of people flee a town because they wanted to move in their troops into their homes. Just careless, brazen, calloused molestation of humanity. Eighteen years this time around. They were in great distress. And it's not the first time in this, these, this cycle has happened. And they cried out to God. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, that's back with Moses, that was hundreds of years earlier. When the Egyptians, and now later, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But after all of that, you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you from all your trouble. I hope you feel the emotion. Can you imagine hearing that's God's message? God? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Not going to work at that moment. Go and tell them to save you. This man is hurt. He's, he's crushed. Who are we talking about? God. See, when God brings a heart to repentance, it is not to bring the heart to the realization that they might go to hell. As much as you might think that might be repentance, I'm sorry, that's not deep enough. That's the fear and sadness over getting caught. Repentance is turning to the God that you've hurt and saying, I see, Father, that I have hurt you in our relationship and you have feelings and it hurts me that I'm the one that hurt you, and I don't want to be that person anymore. In the story that Jesus made up that we read, it's this kid coming home going, I do not deserve to be called your child. His brother agreed, right? I don't deserve to be called your child. I realize that I am not a good son, and I've hurt you, and I feel terrible. Make me one of your slaves. Um. I want you to know that you have hurt God. There's other texts of the Bible and other sermons about other things regarding repentance, but today this text has it right there in black and white. God is hurt deeply and he throws a tantrum. And I want you to know that your sin hurts God. It is not an easy thing for him. It drives him crazy when we sin. And I have to speak for him. I want to speak for him. I get to speak for him. That it is not okay when we sin. There are no little white lies when it's a conscience sin against God. There is nothing in sin that is okay with God. And if you're there, then you can be in the middle of distress 
and say, God, I, I know the distress is warranted. And I know you have feelings. But the fact that you expressed them to me before you actually annihilated me means there's a little hope, right? Do you remember the Syrophoenician woman? She's not a Jew. She came to see Jesus because her daughter was demon-possessed. They were up on the coast, Jesus and his disciples. And she's not a Jewish person. She, and, and he's a Jewish savior coming to save the whole world. But the disciples can't figure that part out. So he's up there. And she barges into the house. And she gets on her knees and she goes, Lord, please, my daughter is demon-possessed. And it's, it's going to kill her. Please help us. And what, is, what does Jesus say to her? Do you remember? Do you remember? He, he said, it's not good to take the crumb, the food from the table and give it to the dogs. The food, he said, belongs to the children. In his illustration, he's referring to Israelites. He's the savior of Israelites. She, what did she do? Oh, it doesn't include me. Or, well, that was a rude, racist comment. No. What did she say? Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs get crumbs from their master's table because they're, she's saying, because they're loved by him. They're a pet in the house. They're a family pet. And what did he say? I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. The whole thing was a test to see if she believed that God had the strong emotion of love for all people that he claimed he had for Israel. And she believed that. And he tested it, and she got, her daughter's demons were cast out that day, and she knew Jesus, and now everybody understood what faith is. Faith in God's love. Israel has a little ember of that faith in this story. Watch what happens. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best. But please rescue us now. And they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. They didn't have, at first, a very good message from God. Go and tell your gods to save you. But they hung in there, just like the Syrophoenician woman. And they said, we've sinned. You can do with us whatever you wish, and you'll be right. You'll be just. We're not going to shake our fist at heaven. You're God. You're the one that... That never misses a thing. We've done it all. We've hurt you. We see that. But please come and rescue us. They uh, they went home, and not just to prove it to him, but because they detested the things that they had worshipped before, they got rid of them. They got rid of all of them. And God sees everything. He saw it all. He saw their hearts, and he saw them get rid of it. And look at what it says. Remember, they're being, still being harassed by their enemies. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Oh, by the way, you were supposed to help me preach back there, but I didn't say the right words. <laughs> uh, when God threw his temper tantrum, why did he say that? Because God has strong feelings. I didn't even follow my own rules. Well, why did God say this? Why, does, why did the writer say God could bear their misery no longer? Because God has strong feelings for them. And this is why I wanted to bring that up. This thing called faith, 
is much less about logic than you will ever think it is. It's about a relationship with a real person. It's not logical after all they've done against him. And by the way, the cycles happened before this and they happened after this event. It's not logical that he'd hang in there with them. But it's not about logic. It's not logical that Jesus' father in his parable would welcome that kid home. That's why the older brother's in the parable. But it's not about logic. It's not logical that God would punish his own son for you and keep preaching it to you after all the cycles you've been through. But it's not about logic. It's about God, who's a person who's madly in love with the people that he's made and saved. He loves you with an incomprehensible, illogical love. And he put his son on the cross for you. Some of these old hymns really catch it. And we sang two of them. And I'm just, I'd like for you to page back to the left. We're almost done here. Bear with me. Go to page three. At the bottom of that page, that hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. That last verse is talking about staying by the cross. Picture yourself outside Jerusalem. Here might I stay and sing by the cross. No story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. See the love and the grief, the feelings, the grief is over our sin. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Praising Jesus. If you turn the page over, when the, the song we sang right before I got up to preach, the last verse, Jesus, may our hearts be burning. Let's say this one together. Jesus, may our hearts be burning with more fervent love for you. May our eyes be ever turning to behold your cross anew. Till in glory parted never from the blessed Savior's side, graven in our hearts forever, dwell the cross, the crucified. Here's, here's the, th- the, the, the bottom line. It is not enough in life, in spiritual life, to say, I'm a better person than I used to be, and I feel good about myself before God. In fact, that's not good at all. It's not enough to say, I'm afraid of going to hell, and that's why I'm now going to try to do better before God. The good enough is not a track record of, you can't look over your life and say, well, I've I've messed up again, so now that's the umpteenth time and God's going to leave me. The, the good enough is to believe that God has strong feelings for you and everyone else. And that His feelings are an incomprehensible grace for you and everyone else. And to believe that He is a loving Savior God. And if you're, if you're starting again to... to to really, like this is just helping you embrace it more, and you want to keep that so that you do actually, clearly for the right motivation, choose not to sin consciously in any given moment. If you want to hold on to this, this is what you do. Spend more time thinking about Jesus on the cross for you. And the love that He has 
will make you love him so that you actually, out of love, kick your little gods out the door. And you would never argue about to defend living in sin or defending a sin or rejecting any word of God over your opinion because you love him too much. It doesn't have to make sense. It's because it's about a relationship. And why am I saying this? Yeah, amen. 